What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Part 10 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal. Saturday, June the 3rd, 1854. Chapter 18 The Gradgrind party wanted assistance in murdering the Graces. They went about recruiting, and where could they enlist recruits more readily than among the fine gentlemen, who having found out everything to be worth nothing, were equally ready for anything. Moreover, the healthy spirits who had mounted to this sublime height were attractive to many of the Gradgrind school. They liked fine gentlemen. They pretended that they did not, but they did. They became exhausted in imitation of them, and they yaw-yawed in their speech like them, and they served out with an enervated air the little mouldy rations of political economy on which they regaled their disciples. There never before was seen on earth such a wonderful hybrid race as was thus produced. Among the fine gentlemen not regularly belonging to the Gradgrind school, there was one of a good family and a better appearance, with a happy turn of humour which had told immensely with the House of Commons on the occasion of his entertaining it with his and the board of directors view of a railway accident in which the most careful officers ever known, employed by the most liberal managers ever heard of, assisted by the finest mechanical contrivances ever devised, the whole in action on the best line ever constructed had killed five people and wounded thirty-two by a casualty without which the excellence of the whole system would have been positively incomplete. Among the slain was a cow, and among the scattered articles unowned, a widow's cap, and the honourable member had so tickled the house, which has a delicate sense of humour, by putting the cap on the cow, that it became impatient of any serious reference to the coroner's inquest, and brought the railway off with cheers and laughter. Now this gentleman had a younger brother of still better appearance than himself, who had tried life as a cornet of dragoons and found it a bore, and had afterwards tried it in the train of an English minister abroad and found it a bore, and had then strolled to Jerusalem and got bored there, and had then gone yachting about the world and got bored everywhere. 
to whom this honourable and jocular member fraternally said one day jem there's a good opening among the hard fact fellows and they want men i wonder you don't go in for statistics jem rather taken by the novelty of the idea and very hard up for a change was as ready to go in for statistics as for anything else so he went in he coached himself up with a blue book or two and his brother put it about among the hard fact fellows and said if you want to bring in for any place a handsome dog who can make you a devilish good speech look after my brother jem for he's your man after a few dashes in the public meeting way mr gradgrind and a council of political sages approved of jem and it was resolved to send him down to coketown to become known there and in the neighbourhood hence the letter jem had last night shown to mrs sparsett which mr bounderby now held in his hand superscribed josiah bounderby esq banker coketown specially to introduce james harthouse esq thomas gradgrind within an hour of the receipt of this dispatch and mr james harthouse's card mr bounderby put on his hat and went down to the hotel there he found mr james harthouse looking out of window in a state of mind so disconsolate that he was already half disposed to go in for something else my name sir said his visitor is josiah bounderby of coketown mr james harthouse was very happy indeed though he scarcely looked so to have a pleasure he had long expected coketown sir said bounderby obstinately taking a chair is not the kind of place you've been accustomed to therefore if you'll allow me or whether you will or not for i'm a plain man i'll tell you something about it before we go any further mr harthouse would be charmed don't be too sure of that said bounderby i don't promise it first of all you see our smoke that's meat and drink to us it's the healthiest thing in the world in all respects and particularly for the lungs if you are one of those who want us to consume it i differ from you we are not going to wear the bottoms of our boilers out any faster than we wear em out now for all the humbugging sentiment in great britain and ireland by way of going in to the fullest extent mr harthouse rejoined mr bounderby i assure you i am entirely and completely of your way of thinking on conviction i'm glad to hear it said bounderby now you've heard a lot of talk about the work in our mills no doubt you have very good i'll state the fact of it to you it's the pleasantest work there is and it's the lightest work there is and it's the best paid work there is more than that we couldn't improve the mills themselves unless we laid down turkey carpets on the floors which we're not a-going to do mr bounderby perfectly right lastly said mr bounderby as to our hands there's not a hand in this town sir man woman or child but has one ultimate object in life that object is to be fed on turtle soup and venison with a gold spoon now they're not a-going none of em ever to be fed on turtle soup and venison with a gold spoon and now you know the place mr harthouse professed himself in the highest degree instructed and refreshed by this condensed epitome of the whole coketown question why you see replied mr bounderby it suits my disposition to have a full understanding with a man 
particularly with a public man, when I make his acquaintance. I have only one thing more to say to you, Mr. Harthouse, before assuring you of the pleasure with which I shall respond to the utmost of my poor ability to my friend Tom Gradgrind's letter of introduction. You are a man of family. Don't you deceive yourself by supposing for a moment that I am a man of family. I am a bit of dirty riff-raff and a genuine scrap of tag-rag and bobtail. If anything could have exalted Jem's interest in Mr. Bounderby, it would have been this very circumstance. Or so he told him. So now, said Bounderby, we may shake hands on equal terms. I say equal terms, because although I know what I am, and the exact depth of the gutter I have lifted myself out of better than any man does, I am as proud as you are. I am just as proud as you are. Having now asserted my independence in a proper manner, I may come to how do you find yourself, and I hope you're pretty well. The better Mr. Harthouse gave him to understand, as they shook hands, for the salubrious air of Coketown. Mr. Bounderby received the answer with favour. "'Perhaps you know,' said he, "'or perhaps you don't know. "'I married Tom Gradgrind's daughter. "'If you have nothing better to do than to walk up town with me, "'I shall be glad to introduce you to Tom Gradgrind's daughter.' "'Mr. Bounderby,' said Jem, "'you anticipate my dearest wishes.' "'They went out without further discourse.' and Mr. Bounderby piloted the new acquaintance, who so strongly contrasted with him, to the private red-brick dwelling, with the black outside shutters, the green inside blinds, and the black street door, up the two white steps. In the drawing-room of which mansion there presently entered to them the most remarkable girl Mr. James Harthouse had ever seen. She was so constrained, and yet so careless, so reserved, and yet so watchful, so cold and proud, and yet so sensitively ashamed of her husband's braggart humility, from which she shrunk as if every example of it were a cut or a blow, that it were quite a new sensation to observe her. In face she was no less remarkable than in manner. Her features were handsome, but their natural play was so suppressed and locked up that it seemed impossible to guess at their genuine expression. Utterly indifferent, perfectly self-reliant, never at a loss and yet never at her ease with her figure in company with them there and her mind apparently quite alone it was of no use going in yet a while to comprehend this girl for she baffled all penetration from the mistress of the house the visitor glanced to the house itself there was no mute sign of a woman in the room no graceful little adornment no fanciful little device however trivial anywhere expressed her influence cheerless and comfortless, boastfully and doggedly rich. There the room stared at its present occupants, unsoftened and unrelieved by the least trace of any womanly occupation. As Mr. Bounderby stood in the midst of his household gods, so those unrelenting divinities occupied their places around Mr. Bounderby, and they were worthy of one another, and well matched. "'This, sir,' said Bounderby, "'is my wife, Mrs. Bounderby.' Tom Gradgrind's eldest daughter. Lou, Mr. James Harthouse. Mr. Harthouse has joined your father's muster-roll. If he is not Tom Gradgrind's colleague before long, I believe we shall at least hear of him in connection with one of our neighbouring towns. 
you observe mr harthouse that my wife is my junior i don't know what she saw in me to marry me but she saw something in me i suppose or she wouldn't have married me she has lots of expensive knowledge sir political and otherwise if you want to cram for anything i should be troubled to recommend you to a better adviser than lou bounderby to a more agreeable adviser or one from whom he would be more likely to learn mr harthouse could never be recommended come said his host if you're in the complimentary line you'll get on here for you'll meet with no competition i've never been in the way of learning compliments myself and i don't profess to understand the art of paying em in fact i despise em but your bringing up was different from mine mine was a real thing by george you're a gentleman and i don't pretend to be one i am josiah bounderby of corktown and that's enough for me however though i am not influenced by manners and station lou bounderby may be she hadn't my advantages disadvantages you would call them but i call them advantages so you'll not waste your power i dare say mr bounderby said jem turning with a smile to louisa is a noble animal in, com in comparatively natural state quite free from the harness in which a conventional hack like myself works you respect mr bounderby very much she quietly returned it is natural that you should he was disgracefully thrown out for a gentleman who had seen so much of the world and thought now how am i to take this you're going to devote yourself as i gather from what mr bounderby has said to the service of your country you've made up your mind said louisa still standing before him where she had first stopped in all the singular contrariety of her self-possession and her being obviously so very ill at ease to show the nation the way out of all its difficulties mrs bounderby he returned laughing upon my honour no i will make no such pretence to you i have seen a little here and there up and down i found it all to be very worthless as everybody has and as some confess they have and some do not and i am going in for your respected father's opinions really because i have no choice of opinions and may as well back them as anything else have you none of your own asked louisa i have not so much as the slightest predilection left i assure you i attach not the least importance to any opinions the result of the varieties of boredom i have undergone is a conviction unless conviction is too industrious a word for the lazy sentiment i entertain on the subject that any set of ideas will do just as much good as any other set and just as much harm as any other set there's an english family with a capital italian motto what will be will be it's the only truth going this vicious assumption of honesty in dishonesty a vice so dangerous so deadly and so common seemed he observed a little to impress her in his favour he followed up the advantage by saying in his pleasantest manner a manner to which she might attach as much or as little meaning as she pleased the side that can prove anything in a line of units tens hundreds and thousands mrs bounderby seems to me to afford the most fun and to give a man the best chance i'm quite as much attached to it as if i believed it i'm quite ready to go in for it to the same extent as if i believed it and what more could i possibly do if i did believe it you're a singular politician said louisa pardon me i have not even that merit we are the largest party in the state i assure you mrs bounderby 
if we all fell out of our adopted ranks and were reviewed together mr bounderby who had been in danger of bursting in silence interposed here with a project for postponing the family dinner to half-past six and taking mr james harthouse in the meantime on a round of visits to the voting and interesting notabilities of coketown and its vicinity the round of visits was made and mr james harthouse with a discreet use of his blue coaching came off triumphantly though with a considerable accession of boredom in the evening he found the dinner-table laid for four but they sat down only three it was an appropriate occasion for mr bounderby to discuss the flavour of the haporth of stewed eels he had purchased in the street at eight years old and also of the inferior water specially used for laying the dust with which he had washed down that repast he likewise entertained his guest over the soup and fish with the calculation that he bounderby had eaten in his youth at least three horses under the guise of polonies and saveloys these recitals jem in a languid manner received with charming every now and again and they probably would have decided him to go in for jerusalem again to-morrow morning had he been less curious respecting louisa is there nothing he thought glancing at her as she sat at the head of the table where her youthful figure small and slight but very graceful looked as pretty as it looked misplaced is there nothing that will move that face yes by jupiter there was something and here it was in an unexpected shape tom appeared she changed as the door opened and broke into a beaming smile a beautiful smile mr james harthouse might not have thought so much of it but that he had wondered so long at her impassive face she put out her hand a pretty little soft hand and her fingers closed upon her brother's as if she would have carried them to her lips ay ay thought the visitor this whelp is the only creature she cares for so so the whelp was presented and took his chair the appellation was not flattering but not unmerited when i was your age young tom said bounderby i was punctual and i got no dinner when you were my age returned tom you hadn't a wrong balance to get right and hadn't a dress afterwards never mind that now said bounderby well then grumbled tom don't begin with me mrs bounderby said harthouse perfectly hearing this understrain as it went on your brother's face is quite familiar to me can i have seen him abroad or at some public school perhaps no she returned quite interested he's never been abroad yet and was educated here at home tom love i'm telling mr harthouse that he never saw you abroad no such luck sir said tom there was little enough in him to brighten her face for he was a sullen young fellow and ungracious in his manner even to her so much the greater must have been the solitude of her heart and her need of some one on whom to bestow it so much the more is this whelp the only creature she's ever cared for thought mr james harthouse turning it over and over so much the more so much the more both in his sister's presence and after he had left the room the whelp took no pains to hide his contempt for mr bounderby whenever he could indulge it without the observation of that independent man by making wry faces or shutting one eye without responding to these telegraphic communications mr harthouse encouraged him much in the course of the evening and showed an unusual liking for him at last when he rose to return to his hotel and was a little doubtful whether he knew the way by night 
the whelp immediately proffered his services as guide and turned out with him to escort him thither chapter nineteen it was very remarkable that a young gentleman who had been brought up under one continuous system of unnatural restraint should be a hypocrite but it was certainly the case with tom it was very strange that a young gentleman who had never been left to his own guidance for five consecutive minutes should be incapable at last of governing himself but so it was with tom it was altogether unaccountable that a young gentleman whose imagination had been strangled in his cradle should be still inconvenienced by its ghost in the form of grovelling sensualities but such a monster beyond all doubt was tom do you smoke asked mr james harthouse when they came to the hotel i believe you said tom he could do no less than ask tom up and tom could do no less than go up what with a cooling drink adapted to the weather but not so weak as cool and what with a rarer tobacco than was to be bought in those parts tom was soon in a highly free and easy state at his end of the sofa and more than ever disposed to admire his new friend at the other end tom blew his smoke aside after he had been smoking a little while and took an observation of his friend he don't seem to care about his dress thought tom and yet how capitally he does it what an easy swell he is mr james harthouse happening to catch tom's eye remarked that he drank nothing and filled his glass with his own negligent hand thank ye said tom thank ye well mr harthouse i hope you have had about a dose of old bounderby to-night tom said this with one eye shut up again and looking over his glass knowingly at his entertainer a very good fellow indeed returned mr james harthouse you think so don't you said tom and shut up his eye again mr james harthouse smiled and rising from his end of the sofa and lounging with his back against the chimney-piece so that he stood before the empty fire-grate as he smoked in front of tom and looking down at him observed what a comical brother-in-law you are what a comical brother-in-law old bounderby is i think you mean said tom you are a piece of caustic tom retorted mr james harthouse there was something so very agreeable in being so intimate with such a waistcoat in being called tom by such a voice in being on such off-hand terms so soon with such a pair of whiskers that tom was uncommonly pleased with himself oh i don't care for old bounderby said he if you mean that i've always called old bounderby by the same name when i've talked about him and i've always thought of him in the same way i'm not going to begin to be polite now about old bounderby it will be rather late in the day don't mind me returned james but take care when his wife is by you know his wife said tom my sister lou oh yes and he laughed and took a little more of the cooling drink james harthouse continued to lounge in the same place and attitude smoking his cigar in his own easy way and looking pleasantly at the whelp as if he knew himself to be a kind of agreeable demon who had only to hover over him and he must give up his whole soul if required it certainly did seem that the whelp yielded to this influence he looked at his companion sneakingly he looked at him admiringly he looked at him boldly and put up one leg on the sofa my sister lou said tom she never cared for old bounderby that's the past tense tom returned mr james harthouse 
striking the ash from his cigar with his little finger we are in the present tense now verb neuter not to care indicative mood present tense first person singular i do not care second person singular thou dost not care third person singular she does not care returned tom good very quaint said his friend though you don't mean it but i do mean it cried tom upon my honour why you won't tell me mr harthouse that you really suppose my sister lou does care for old bounderby my dear fellow returned the other what am i bound to suppose when i find two married people living in harmony and happiness tom had by this time got both his legs on the sofa if his second leg had not been already there when he was called a dear fellow he would have put it up at that great stage of the conversation feeling it necessary to do something then he stretched himself out at greater length and reclining with the back of his head on the end of the sofa and smoking with an infinite assumption of negligence turned his common face and not too sober eyes towards the face looking down upon him so carelessly yet so potently you know our governor mr harthouse said tom and therefore you needn't be surprised that lou married old bounderby she never had a lover and the governor proposed old bounderby and she took him very dutiful in your interesting sister said mr james harthouse yes but she wouldn't have been as dutiful and it would not have come off as easily returned the whelp if it hadn't been for me the tempter merely lifted his eyebrows but the whelp was obliged to go on i persuaded her he said with an edifying air of superiority i was stuck into old bounderby's bank where i never wanted to be and i knew i should get into scrapes there if she put old bounderby's pipe out so i told her my wishes and she came into them she would do anything for me it was very game of her wasn't it it was charming tom not that it was altogether so important to her as it was to me continued tom coolly because my liberty and comfort and perhaps my getting on depended on it and she had no other lover and staying at home was like staying in jail especially when i was gone it wasn't as if she gave up another lover for old bounderby but still it was a good thing in her perfectly delightful and she gets on so placidly oh returned tom with a contemptuous patronage she's a regular girl a girl can get on anywhere she's settled down to the life and she don't mind the life does just as well for her as another besides though lou is a girl she's not a common sort of girl she can shut herself up within herself and think as i've often known her sit and watch the fire for an hour at a stretch ay ay has resources of her own said harthouse smoking quietly not so much of that as you may suppose returned tom for our governor had her crammed with all sorts of dry bones and sawdust it's his system formed his daughter on his own model suggested harthouse his daughter ah and everybody else why he formed me that way said tom impossible he did though said tom shaking his head i mean to say mr harthouse that when i first left home and went to old bounderby's i was as flat as a warming-pan and knew no more about life than any oyster does come tom i can hardly believe that a joke's a joke upon my soul said the whelp i'm serious i am indeed he smoked with great gravity and dignity for a little while and then added in a highly complacent tone oh 
i have picked up a little since i don't deny that but i've done it myself no thanks to the governor and your intelligent sister my intelligent sister is about where she was she used to complain to me that she had nothing to fall back upon that girls usually fall back upon and i don't see how she is to have got over that since but she don't mind he sagaciously added puffing at his cigar again girls can always get on somehow calling at the bank yesterday evening for mr bounderby's address i found an ancient lady there who seems to entertain great admiration for your sister observed mr james harthouse throwing away the last small remnant of the cigar he had now smoked out mother sparsett said tom what you've seen her already have you his friend nodded tom took his cigar out of his mouth to shut up his eye which had grown rather unmanageable with the greater expression and to tap his nose several times with his finger mother sparsett's feeling for lou is more than admiration i should think said tom say affection and devotion mother sparsett never set her cap at bounderby when he was a bachelor oh no these were the last words spoken by the whelp before a giddy drowsiness came upon him followed by complete oblivion he was roused from the latter state by an uneasy dream of being stirred up with a boot and also of a voice saying come it's late be off well he said scrambling from the sofa i must take my leave of you though i say yours is very good tobacco but it's too mild yes it's too mild returned his entertainer it's it's ridiculously mild said tom where's the door good night he had another odd dream of being taken by a waiter through a mist which after giving him some trouble and difficulty resolved itself into the main street into which he stood alone he then walked home pretty easily though not yet free from an impression of the presence and influence of his new friend as if he were lounging somewhere in the air in the same negligent attitude regarding him with the same look the whelp went home and went to bed if he had had any sense of what he had done that night and had been less of a whelp and more of a brother he might have turned short on the road might have gone down to the ill-smelling river that was dyed black might have gone to bed in it for good and all and have curtained his head for ever with its filthy waters End of part 10「Part Eleven of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal, Saturday, June the tenth, eighteen fifty four. Chapter Twenty. Oh, my friends, the downtrodden operatives of Coketown. Oh, my friends and fellow countrymen, the slaves of an iron handed and a grinding despotism oh my friends and fellow sufferers and fellow workmen and fellow men i tell you that the hour is come when we must rally round one another as one united power and crumble into dust the oppressors that too long have battened upon the plunder of our families upon the sweat of our brows upon the labour of our hands upon the strength of our sinews upon the god-created glorious rights of humanity and upon the holy and eternal privileges of brotherhood good hear 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 hurrah 
and other cries arose in many voices from various parts of the densely crowded and suffocatingly close hall in which the orator perched on a stage delivered himself of this and what other froth and fume he had in him he had declaimed himself into a violent heat and was as hoarse as he was hot by dint of roaring at the top of his voice under a flaring gaslight clenching his fists knitting his brows setting his teeth and pounding with his arms he had taken so much out of himself by this time that he was brought to a stop and called for a glass of water as he stood there trying to quench his fiery face with his drink of water the comparison between the orator and the crowd of attentive faces turned towards him was extremely to his disadvantage judging him by nature's evidence he was above the mass in very little but the stage on which he stood in many great respects he was essentially below them he was not so honest he was not so manly he was not so good-humoured he substituted cunning for their simplicity and passion for their safe solid sense an ill-made high-shouldered man with lowering brows and his features crushed into an habitually sour expression he contrasted most unfavourably even in his mongrel dress with the great body of his hearers in their plain working clothes strange as it always is to consider any assembly in the act of submissively resigning itself to the dreariness of some complacent person lord or commoner whom three-fourths of it could by no human means raise out of the slough of inanity to their own intellectual level it was particularly strange and it was even particularly affecting to see this crowd of earnest faces whose honesty in the main no competent observer free from bias could doubt so agitated by such a leader good hear hear hurrah the eagerness both of attention and intention exhibited in all the countenances made them a most impressive sight there was no carelessness no languor no idle curiosity none of the many shades of indifference to be seen in all other assemblies visible for one moment there that every man felt his condition to be somehow or other worse than it might be that every man considered it incumbent upon him to join the rest towards the making of it better that every man felt his only hope to be in his allying himself to the comrades by whom he was surrounded and that in this belief right or wrong unhappily wrong then the whole of that crowd were gravely deeply faithfully in earnest must have been as plain to any one who chose to see what was there as the bare beams of the roof and the whitened brick walls nor could any such spectator fail to know in his own breast that these men through their very delusions showed great qualities susceptible of being turned to the happiest and best account and that to pretend on the strength of sweeping axioms howsoever cut and dried that they went astray wholly without cause and of their own irrational wills was to pretend that there could be smoke without fire death without birth harvest without seed anything or everything produced from nothing the orator having refreshed himself wiped his corrugated forehead from left to right several times with his handkerchief folded into a pad and concentrated all his revived forces in a sneer of great disdain and bitterness but oh my friends and brothers oh men and englishmen the downtrodden operatives of coketown what shall we say of that man that working man that i should find it necessary so to libel the glorious name 
who being practically and well acquainted with the grievances and wrongs of you the injured pith and marrow of this land and having heard you with a noble and majestic unanimity that will make tyrants tremble resolve for to subscribe to the funds of the united aggregate tribunal and to abide by the injunctions issued by that body for your benefit whatever they may be what i ask you will you say of that working man since such i must acknowledge him to be who at such a time deserts his post and sells his flag who at such a time turns a traitor and a craven and a recreant who at such a time is not ashamed to make to you the dastardly and humiliating avowal that he will hold himself aloof and will not be one of those associated in the gallant stand for freedom and for right the assembly was divided at this point there were some groans and hisses but the general sense of honour was much too strong for the condemnation of a man unheard be sure you're right slackbridge put him up let's hear him such things were said on many sides finally one strong voice called out is the man here if the man's here slackbridge let's hear the man himself instead of you which was received with a round of applause slackbridge the orator looked about him with a withering smile and holding out his right hand at arm's length as the manner of all slackbridges is to still the thundering sea waited until there was a profound silence oh my friends and fellow-men said slackbridge then shaking his head with violent scorn i do not wonder that you the prostrate sons of labour are incredulous of the existence of such a man but he who sold his birthright for a mess of pottage existed and judas iscariot existed and castlereagh existed and this man exists here a brief press and confusion near the stage ended in the man himself standing at the orator's side before the concourse he was pale and a little moved in the face his lips especially showed it but he stood quiet with his left hand at his chin waiting to be heard there was a chairman to regulate the proceedings and this functionary now took the case into his own hands my friends said he by virtue of my office as your president i ashes of our friend slackbridge who may be a little over in this business to take his seat whilst this man stephen blackpool is here you all know this man stephen blackpool you know him along of his misfortunes and his good name with that the chairman shook him frankly by the hand and sat down again slackbridge likewise sat down wiping his hot forehead always from left to right and never the reverse way my friends stephen began in the midst of a dead calm i heard what's been spoken to me and tis likely that i shan't mend it but i'd leave for you in the truth concerning myself from my lips than for any other man's though i never couldn't speak a force of money without being moidered and muddled slackbridge shook his head as if he would shake it off in his bitterness i'm the one single hand in bounderby's mill oh the men there as don't come in with proposed regulations i canna come in wi em my friends i doubt they're doing you any good liquor they'll do you hurt slackbridge laughed folded his arms and frowned sarcastically but tan't so much for that as i stands out if that were all i'd come in with rest but i am my reasons mine you see for being hindered 
not only now but allus allus life long slackbridge jumped up and stood beside him gnashing and tearing oh my friends what but this did i tell you oh my fellow-countrymen what warning but this did i give you and how shows this recreant conduct in a man on whom unequal laws are known to have fallen heavy oh you englishmen i ask you how does this subornation show in one of yourselves who is thus consenting to his own undoing and to yours and to your children's and your children's children's there was some applause and some crying of shame upon the man but the greater part of the audience were quiet they looked at stephen's worn face rendered more pathetic by the homely emotions it evinced and in the kindness of their nature they were more sorry than indignant tis this delegate's trade for to speak said stephen and he's paid for it and he knows his work let him keep to it let him give no heed to what i hadn't to bear that's not for him that's not for nobody but me there was a propriety not to say a dignity in these words that made the hearers yet more quiet and attentive the same strong voice called out slackbridge let the man be in and out the tongue then the place was wonderfully still my brothers said stephen whose low voice was distinctly heard and my fellow workmen for that ye are to me though not as i knows on to this delegate here i ha but a word to send and i could send no more if i was to speak till strike a day i know weel o'er oh, what's afore me i know weel that you are resolved to hand no more ado wi' a man who is not wi' you in this matter i know weel that if i was a lion parished i'th road you'd feel it right to pass me by as a foreigner and stranger what i a getten i mun mak best on stephen blackpool said the chairman rising think on't again think on't again lad afore thou'rt shunned before our owd friends there was a universal murmur to the same effect though no man articulated a word every eye was fixed on stephen's face to repent of his determination would be to take a load from all their minds he looked around him and knew that it was so not a grain of anger with them was in his heart he knew them far below their surface weaknesses and misconceptions as no one but their fellow labourer could i have thought on't above a bit sir i simply canna come in i mun go thway as lays afore me i mun tap my leave of o'er here he made a sort of reverence to them by holding up his arms and stood for the moment in that attitude not speaking until they slowly dropped at his sides mon is the pleasant word as some here has spoken wi me mon is the face i see here as i first seen when i were young and lighter hearted than now i ha never had no fracture fore sin ever i were born wi any o my like go knows i ha none now that's a my making you'll call me traitor and that you are mean to say addressing slackbridge but tis easier to call than mak out so let be he had moved away a pace or two to come down from the platform when he remembered something he had not said and returned again aptly he said turning his furrowed face slowly about that he might as it were individually address the whole audience those both near and distant haply when this question has been taken up and discussed there'll be a threat to turn out if i'm let to work among ye 
i hope i shall die ere ever such a time comes and i shall work solitary among you unless it comes truly i mun do it me friends not to brave you but to live i ha no but work to live by and wherever can i go i who a work sin i were no eight for tow in coketown here i mak no complaints o being turned to the war o being out gastin and overlookin from this time forrard but i hope i shall be let to work if there is any right for me at all my friends i think tis that not a word was spoken not a sound was audible in the building but the slight rustle of men moving a little apart all along the centre of the room to open a means of passing out to the man with whom they had all bound themselves to renounce companionship looking at no one and going his way with a lowly steadiness upon him that asserted nothing and sought nothing old stephen with all his troubles on his head left the scene then slackbridge who had kept his oratorical arm extended during the going out as if he were repressing with infinite solicitude and by a wonderful moral power the vehement passions of the multitude applied himself to raising their spirits had not the roman brutus oh my british countrymen condemned his son to death and had not the spartan mothers oh my soon-to-be victorious friends driven their flying children on the points of their enemies' swords then was it not the sacred duty of the men of coketown with forefathers before them an admiring world in company with them and a posterity to come after them to hurl out traitors from the tents they had pitched in a sacred and a godlike cause the winds of heaven answered yes and bore yes east west north and south and consequently three cheers for the united aggregate tribunal slackbridge acted as a fugleman and gave the time the multitude of doubtful faces a little conscience-stricken brightened at the sound and took it up private feeling must yield to the common cause hurrah the roof yet vibrated with the cheering when the assembly dispersed thus easily did stephen blackpool fall into the loneliest of lives the life of solitude among a familiar crowd the stranger in the land who looks into ten thousand faces for some answering look and never finds it is in a cheering society as compared with him who passes ten averted faces daily that were once the countenances of friends such experience was to be stephen's now in every waking moment of his life at his work on his way to it and from it at his door at his window everywhere by general consent they even avoided that side of the street on which he habitually walked and left it of all the working men to him only he had been for many years a quiet silent man associating but little with other men and used to companionship with his own thoughts he had never known before the strength of the want in his heart for the frequent recognition of a nod a look a word or the immense amount of relief that had been poured into it by drops through such small means it was even harder than he could have believed possible to separate in his own conscience his abandonment by all his fellows from a baseless sense of shame and disgrace the first four days of his endurance were days so long and heavy that he began to be appalled by the prospect before him not only did he see no rachel all the time but he avoided every chance of seeing her for although he knew that the prohibition did not yet formally extend to the women working in the factories 
he found that some of them with whom he was acquainted were changed to him and he feared to try others and dreaded that rachel might be even singled out from the rest if she were seen in his company so he had been quite alone during the four days and had spoken to no one when as he was leaving his work at night a young man of a very light complexion accosted him in the street your name's blackpool ain't it said the young man stephen coloured to find himself with his hat in his hand in his gratitude for being spoken to or in the suddenness of it or both he made a feint of adjusting the lining and said yes you're the hand they've sent to coventry i mean said bitzer the very light young man in question stephen answered yes again i suppose so from their all appearing to keep away from you mr bounderby wants to speak to you you know his house don't you stephen said yes again then go straight up there will you said bitzer you're expected and have only to tell the servant it's you i belong to the bank so if you go straight up without me i was sent to fetch you you'll save me a walk stephen whose way had been in the contrary direction turned about and betook himself as in duty bound to the red brick castle of the giant bounderby chapter twenty one well stephen said bounderby in his windy manner what's this i hear what have these pests of the earth been doing to you come in and speak up it was into the drawing-room that he was thus bidden a tea-table was set out and mr bounderby's young wife and her brother and a great gentleman from london were present to whom stephen made his obeisance closing the door and standing near it with his hat in his hand this is the man i was telling you about harthouse said mr bounderby the gentleman he addressed who was talking to mrs bounderby on the sofa got up saying in an indolent way oh really and dawdled to the hearthrug where mr bounderby stood now said bounderby speak up after the four days he had passed this address fell rudely and discordantly on stephen's ear besides being a rough handling of his wounded mind it seemed to assume that he really was the self-interested deserter he had been called what were it sir said stephen as you were pleased to want with me why i've told you returned bounderby speak up like a man since you are a man and tell us about yourself and this combination will you pardon sir said stephen blackpool i an out to send about it mr bounderby who was always more or less like a wind finding something in his way here began to blow at it directly now look here art house said he here's a specimen of em when this man was here once before i warned this man against the mischievous strangers who are always about and who ought to be hanged wherever they are found and i told this man that he was going in the wrong direction now would you believe it that although they have put this mark upon him he is such a slave to them still that he's afraid to open his lips about them i said as i had now to send sir not as i were fearful of opening me lips you said ah i know what you said more than that i know what you mean you see not always the same thing by the lord harry quite different things you'd better tell us at once that that fellow slackbridge is not in the town stirring up the people to mutiny and that he is not a regular qualified leader of the people that is 
a most confounded scoundrel you'd better tell us so at once you can't deceive me you want to tell us so why don't you i'm as sorry as you sir when the people's leaders is bad said stephen shaking his head they attack such as offers haply tis na the smallest of their misfortunes when they can get no better the wind began to be boisterous now you'll think this pretty well harthouse said mr bounderby you'll think this tolerably strong you'll say upon my soul this is a tidy specimen of what my friends have to deal with but this is nothing sir you shall hear me ask this man a question pray mr blackpool wind springing up very fast may i take the liberty of asking you how it happens that you refuse to be in this combination how it happens ah said mr bounderby with his thumbs in the arms of his coat and jerking his head and shutting his eyes in confidence with the opposite wall how it happens i'd liefer not come to it sir but sin you put the question and not wantin' to be ill-mannered i'll answer i have passed a promise not to me you know said bounderby gusty weather with deceitful calms one now prevailing oh no sir not to you as for me any consideration for me has had just nothing at all to do with it said bounderby still in confidence with the wall if only josiah bounderby of corktown had been in question you would have joined and made no bones about it why yes sir tis true though he knows said mr bounderby now blowing a gale that these are a set of rascals and rebels whom transportation is too good for now mr harthouse you have been knocking about in the world some time did you ever meet with anything like that man out of this blessed country and mr bounderby pointed him out for inspection with an angry finger nay ma'am said stephen blackpool staunchly protesting against the words that had been used and instinctively addressing himself to louisa after glancing at her face not rebels nor yet rascals now to th kind ma'am now to th kind they've not done me a kindness ma'am as i know and feel but there's not a dozen men among em ma'am a dozen not six but what believes as he has done his duty by the rest and by himself god forbid as i that are known and had an experience of these men o'er my life i that are etten and drunken wi em and seetin wi em and toilin wi em and lovin em should fail for to stand by em with truth let em ha' done to me what they may he spoke with the rugged earnestness of his place and character deepened perhaps by a proud consciousness that he was faithful to his class under all their mistrust but he fully remembered where he was and did not even raise his voice no ma'am no they're true to one another faithful to one another fectionate to one another e'en to death be poor among em be sick among em grieve among em for ony of the money causes that carries grief to the poor man's door and they'll be tender wi ye gentle wi ye comfortable wi ye christen wi ye be sure o that ma'am they'd be riven to bits ere ever they'd be different in short said mr bounderby it's because they're so full of virtues that they have turned you adrift go through with it while you're about it out with it out is ma'am 
resumed Stephen, appearing still to find his natural refuge in Louisa's face, that what is best in us folk seems to turn us most to trouble and misfortune and mistake, I dunno. But tis so. I know it is, as I know the heavens is o'er me a hint the smoke. We're patient too, and wants in general to do right, and I canna think the fort is o'er we us. Now, my friend, said Mr. Bounderby, whom he could not have exasperated more, quite unconscious of it though he was, than by seeming to appeal to any one else. If you will favour me with your attention for half a minute, I should like to have a word or two with you. You said just now that you had nothing to tell us about this business. You're quite sure of that before we go any further? Sir, I am sure, aunt. Here's a gentleman from London present. Mr. Bounderby made a backhanded point at Mr. James Harthouse with his thumb. A parliament gentleman. I should like him to hear a short bit of dialogue between you and me, instead of taking the substance of it, for I know precious well beforehand what it will be. Nobody knows better than I do, take notice, instead of receiving it on trust from my mouth. Stephen bent his head to the gentleman from London, and showed a rather more troubled mind than usual. He turned his eyes involuntarily to his former refuge, but at a look from that quarter, expressive though instantaneous, he settled them on Mr. Bounderby's face. "'Now, what do you complain of?' asked Mr. Bounderby. "'I have not come here, sir,' Stephen reminded him, "'to complain. I come for that I was sent for.' "'What?' repeated Mr. Bounderby, folding his arms. "'Do you people, in a general way, complain of?' Stephen looked at him with some little irresolution for a moment, and then seemed to make up his mind. "'Sir, I were never good at showing it, though I had a share in feeling it. "'Deed we are in a muddle, sir. Look round town, so rich as tis, "'and see if numbers of people as has been brought in into being here.' For to weave, and to card, and to piece out a living, o'er the same one way, somehow's, twixt their cradles and their graves. Look how we live, and where we live, and in what numbers, and by what chances, and with what sameness, and look how the mills is all us a-going, and how they never works as no nigher to any distant object, excepting all us death. Look how you considers of us, and writes of us, and talks of us, and goes up with your deputations to secretaries of state about us, and how you are all us right, and how we are all us wrong, and never had a no reason in us since ever we were born. Look how this are growing and growing, sir, bigger and bigger, broader and broader, harder and harder, for a year to year, for a generation unto generation. Who can look on, sir, and fairly tell a man tis not a muddle? "'Of course,' said Mr. Bounderby. "'Now, perhaps you'll let the gentleman know "'how you would set this muddle, "'as you're so fond of calling it, to rights.' "'I don't know, sir. "'I canna be expectant to it. "'Tis not me as should be looking to for that, sir. "'Tis them as is put o'er me, "'and o'er all the rest of us. "'What do they attack upon them, sen, sir, "'if not to do it?' "'I'll tell you something towards it, at any rate,' "'returned Mr. Bounderby. We'll make an example of half a dozen slack bridges. We'll indict the blackguards for felony and get them shipped off to penal settlements. Stephen gravely shook his head. 
don't tell me we won't man said mr bounderby by this time blowing a hurricane because we will i tell you sir returned stephen with the quiet confidence of absolute certainty if you was to tack a hundred slack bridges or as there is and o'er the number ten times towed and was to sew em up in separate sacks and sink em in the deepest ocean as were made ere ever dry land come to be you'd leave the muddle just where it is mischievous strangers said stephen with an anxious smile when are we not e'en i'm sure sin ever we can call to mind th mischievous strangers tis not by them the trouble's made sir tis not wi them t commences i a no favour for em i a no reason to favour em but tis hopeless and useless to dream o tackin them fro the trade stead o tackin the trade fro them o oh, that's now about me in this room were here afore i come and will be here when i'm gone put that clock aboard a ship and pack it off to norfolk island and the time will go on just the same so tis we slackbridge every bit reverting for a moment to his former refuge he observed a cautionary movement of her eyes towards the door stepping back he put his hand upon the lock but he had not spoken out of his own will and desire and he felt it in his heart a noble return for his late injurious treatment to be faithful to the last to those who had repudiated him he stayed to finish what was in his mind sir i canna with my little learning and my common way tell the gentleman what will better o'er this though some working men o' this town could above my powers but i can tell him what i know will never do it the strong hand will never do it victory and triumph will never do it agreeing for to mak one side unnaturally allus and for ever right and t'other side unnaturally allus and for ever wrong will never never do it nor yet letting alone will never do it let thousands upon thousands alone or leading the like lives and all fawn into the like muddle and they'll be as one and you will be as another we are black unpassable world betwixt you just as long or short a time as sich like misery can last not drawing nigh to folk with kindness and patience and cheery ways that so draws nigh to one another in their money troubles and so cherishes one another in their distresses with what they need themselves like i humbly believe as no people the gentleman has seen in all his travels can beat will never do it till the sun turns tice last o'er rating em as so much power and regulating em as if they was figures in a sum or machines without loves and likings without memories and inclinations without souls to weary and souls to hope when all goes quiet dragging on wi em as if they'd nowteth kind and when all goes unquiet reproaching em for their want to sit humanly feelings in their dealings wi ye this will never do it sir till god's work is unmade stephen stood with the open door in his hand waiting to know if anything more were expected of him just stop a moment said mr bounderby excessively red in the face i told you the last time you were here with a grievance that you'd better turn about and come out of that and i also told you if you remember that i was up to the gold spoon lookout i were not up to it myself sir i do assure you now it's clear to me said mr bounderby 
that you were one of those chaps who have always got a grievance, and you go about sowing it and raising crops. That's the business of your life, my friend. Stephen shook his head, mutely protesting that indeed he had other business to do for his life. You are such a waspish, raspish, ill-conditioned chap, you see, said Mr. Bounderby, that even your own union, the men who know you best, will have nothing to do with you. I never thought those fellows could be right in anything, but I tell you what, I so far go along with them for a novelty, that I'll have nothing to do with you either. Stephen raised his eyes quickly to his face. You can finish off what you're at, said Mr. Bounderby, with a meaning nod. And then go elsewhere. Sir, you know, Weel, says Stephen, expressively, that if I canna get work with you, I canna get it elsewhere. The reply was, What I know, I know, and what you know, you know. I have no more to say about it. Stephen glanced at Louisa again, but her eyes were raised to his no more. Therefore, with a sigh, and saying barely above his breath, Heaven help us all in this world, he departed. End of part 11Part 12 of Hard Times by Charles Dickens. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. From Household Words, a weekly journal. Saturday, June the 17th, 1854. Chapter 22. It was falling dark when Stephen came out of Mr. Bounderby's house. The shadows of night had gathered so fast that he did not look about him when he closed the door but plodded straight along the street. Nothing was further from his thoughts than the curious old woman he had encountered on his previous visit to the same house, when he heard a step behind him that he knew, and turning, saw her in Rachel's company. He saw Rachel first, as he had heard her only. Ah, Rachel, my dear, Mrs. Thou we're. Well, and now you're surprised to be sure, and we reason, I must say, the old woman returned. Here I am again, you see. But how, we Rachel, said Stephen, falling into their step, walking between them, and looking from the one to the other. Why, I come to be with this good lass, pretty much as I came to be with you, said the old woman cheerfully, taking the reply upon herself. My visiting time is later this year than usual, for I've been rather troubled with shortness of breath, and so put it off till the weather was fine and warm. For the same reason, I don't make all my journey in one day, but divide it into two days, and get a bed to-night at the Traveller's Coffee-House down by the railroad, a nice clean house, and go back, parliamentary, at six in the morning. Well, but what has this to do with this good lass, says you? I'm going to tell you. I have heard of Mr. Bounderby being married. I read it in the paper, where it looked grand. Oh, it looked fine. The old woman dwelt on it with strange enthusiasm. And I want to see his wife. I've never seen her yet. Now, if you'll believe me, she hasn't come out of that house since noon today. So not to give her up too easily, I was waiting about a little last bit more when I passed close to this good lass two or three times. And her face being so friendly, I spoke to her, and she spoke to me. There, said the old woman to Stephen. You can make all the rest out for yourself now, 
a deal shorter than i can i dare say once again stephen had to conquer an instinctive propensity to dislike this old woman though her manner was as honest and simple as a manner possibly could be with a gentleness that was as natural to him as he knew it to be to rachel he pursued the subject that interested her in her old age well missis said he i have seen the lady and she were young and handsome with fine dark thinking eyes and a still way rachel as i ha never seen the like on young and handsome yes cried the old woman quite delighted as bonny as a rose and what a happy wife ay missis i suppose she be said stephen but with a doubtful glance at rachel suppose she be she must be she's your master's wife returned the old woman stephen nodded assent who has to master said he glancing again at rachel not master any more that's our endin twixt him and me have you left his work stephen asked rachel anxiously and quickly why rachel he replied whether i a left in his work or whether his work a left in me comes to the same his work and me a parted tis as weel so better i were thinking when you come up with me it would have brought un trouble upon trouble if i had stayed there haply tis a kindness to money that i go haply tis a kindness to myself anyways it mun be done i mun turn my face for a cork town for the time and seek a fortin day by beginning fresh where will you go stephen i don't know to-night said he lifting off his hat and smoothing his thin hair with the flat of his hand but i'm not a-goin to-night rachel nor yet to-morrow tan't easy over much to know where to turn but a good heart will come to me herein too the sense of even thinking unselfishly aided him before he had so much as closed mr bounderby's door he had reflected that at least his being obliged to go away was good for her as it would save her from the chance of being brought into question for not withdrawing from him though it would cost him a hard pang to leave her and though he could think of no similar place in which his condemnation would not pursue him perhaps it was almost a relief to be forced away from the endurance of the last four days even to unknown difficulties and distresses so he said with truth i'm more leetsome rachel under it than i couldna ha believed it was not her part to make his burden heavier she answered with her comforting smile and the three walked on together age especially when it strives to be self-reliant and cheerful finds much consideration among the poor the old woman was so decent and contented and made so light of her infirmities though they had increased upon her since her former interview with stephen that they both took an interest in her she was too sprightly to allow of their walking at a slow pace on her account but she was very grateful to be talked to and very willing to talk to any extent so when they come to their part of the town she was more brisk and vivacious than ever come to my poor place missus said stephen and tak a cup o tea rachel will come then and arterwards i'll see thee safe to thy traveller's lodging it may be long rachel ere ever i have the chance of thy company again they complied and the three went on to the house where he lodged when they turned into the narrow street stephen glanced at his window with a dread that always haunted his desolate home but it was open as he had left it and no one was there 
the evil spirit of his life had flitted away again months ago and he had heard no more of her since the only evidences of her last return now were the scantier movables in his room and the greyer hair upon his head he lighted a candle set out his little tea-board got hot water from below and brought in small portions of tea and sugar a loaf and some butter from the nearest shop the bread was new and crusty the butter fresh and the sugar lump of course in fulfilment of the standard testimony of the coketown magnates that these people lived like princes sir rachel made the tea so large a party necessitated the borrowing of a cup and the visitor enjoyed it mightily it was the first glimpse of sociality the host had had for many days he too with the world a wide heath before him enjoyed the meal again in corroboration of the magnates as exemplifying the utter want of calculation on the part of these people sir i ha never thought yet missis said stephen asking thy name the old lady announced herself as mrs pegler a widder i think said stephen oh many long years mrs pegler's husband one of the best on record was already dead by mrs pegler's calculation when stephen was born twere a bad job too to lose so good a one said stephen only children mrs pegler's cup rattling against a saucer as she held it denoted some nervousness on her part no she said not now not now dead stephen rachel softly hinted i'm sorry i spoke aunt said stephen i ought to hadn't in me mind as i might touch a sore place i i blame myself while he excused himself the old lady's cup rattled more and more i had a son she said curiously distressed and not by any of the usual appearances of sorrow and he did well wonderfully well but he's not to be spoken of if you please is putting down her cup she moved her hands as if she would have added by her action dead then she said aloud i've lost him stephen had not yet got the better of his having given the old lady pain when his landlady came stumbling up the narrow stairs and calling him to the door whispered in his ear mrs pegler was by no means deaf for she caught a word as it was uttered bounderby she cried in a suppressed voice starting up from the table oh hide me don't let me be seen for the world don't let him come up till i've got away pray pray she trembled and was excessively agitated getting behind rachel when rachel tried to reassure her and not seeming to know what she was about but hearken missis hearken said stephen astonished tisn't mr bounderby tis his wife you're not fear for her you was eager mad about her but an hour sin but are you sure it's the lady and not the gentleman she asked still trembling certain sure well then pray don't speak to me nor yet take any notice of me said the old woman let me be quite to myself in this corner stephen nodded looking to rachel for an explanation which she was quite unable to give him took the candle went downstairs and in a few moments returned lighting louisa into the room she was followed by the whelp rachel had risen and stood apart with her shawl and bonnet in her hand when stephen himself profoundly astonished by this visit put the candle on the table then he too stood with his doubled hand upon the table near it waiting to be addressed for the first time in her life louisa had come into one of the dwellings of the coketown hands 
for the first time in her life she was face to face with anything like individuality in connection with them she knew of their existence by hundreds and by thousands she knew what results in work a given number of them would produce in a given space of time she knew them in crowds passing to and from their nests like ants or beetles but she knew from her reading infinitely more of the ways of toiling insects than of these toiling men and women something to be worked so much and paid so much and there ended something to be infallibly settled by laws of supply and demand something that blundered against those laws and floundered into difficulty something that was a little pinched when wheat was dear and overate itself when wheat was cheap something that increased at such a rate of percentage and yielded such another percentage of crime and such another percentage of pauperism something wholesale of which vast fortunes were made something that occasionally rose like a sea and did some harm and waste chiefly to itself and fell again this she knew the coketown hands to be but she had scarcely thought more of separating them into units than of separating the sea itself into its component drops she stood for some moments looking round the room from the few chairs the few books the common prints and the bed she glanced to the two women and to stephen i've come to speak to you in consequence of what passed just now i should like to be serviceable to you if you'll let me is this your wife rachel raised her eyes and they sufficiently answered no and dropped again i remember said louisa reddening at her mistake i recollect now to have heard your domestic misfortune spoken of though i was not attending to the particulars at the time it was not my meaning to ask a question that would give pain to any one here if i should ask any other question that may happen to have that result give me credit if you please for being in ignorance how to speak to you as i ought and stephen had but a little while ago instinctively addressed himself to her so she now instinctively addressed herself to rachel her manner was short and abrupt yet faltering and timid he has told you what has passed between himself and my husband you would be his first resource i think i've heard the end of it young lady said rachel did i understand that being rejected by one employer he would probably be rejected by all i thought he said as much the chances are very small young lady next to nothing for a man who gets a bad name among them what shall i understand that you mean by a bad name the name of being troublesome then by the prejudices of his own class and by the prejudices of the other he is sacrificed alike are the two so deeply separated in this town that there is no place whatever for an honest workman between them rachel shook her head in silence he fell into suspicion said louisa with his fellow weavers because he had made a promise not to be one of them i think it might have been to you that he made that promise might i ask you why he made it rachel burst into tears i didn't seek it of him poor lad i prayed him to avoid trouble for his own good little thinking he'd come to it through me but i know he'd die a hundred deaths ere ever he'd break his word i know that of him well stephen had remained quietly attentive in his usual thoughtful attitude with his hand at his chin he now spoke in a voice rather less steady than usual no one except in miss elm can ever know what honour and what love and respect i bear to rachel or we what cause when i passed that promise i told her true she was the angel of my life twere a solemn promise 
tis gone from me for ever louisa turned her head to him and bent it with a deference that was new in her she looked from him to rachel and her features softened what will you do she asked him and her voice had softened too well ma'am said stephen making the best of it with a smile when her finished off i mun quit this part and try another fortnight or misfortnight a man can but try there's nowt to be done without trying set laying doon and dying how will you travel afoot my kind lady afoot louisa coloured and a purse appeared in her hand the rustling of a banknote was audible as she unfolded one and laid it on the table rachel will you tell him for you know how without offence that this is freely his to help him on his way will you entreat him to take it i canna do that young lady she answered turning her head aside bless you for thinking of poor lad with such tenderness but tis for him to know his heart and what is right according to it louisa looked in part incredulous in part frightened in part overcome with quick sympathy when this man of so much self-command who had been so plain and steady through the late interview lost his composure in a moment and now stood with his hand before his face she stretched out hers as if she would have touched him and then checked herself and remained still not e'en rachel said stephen when he stood again with his face uncovered could make sich a kind offering by ony words kinder to show that i'm not a man without reason and gratitude i'll tack two pound i'll borrow it for to pay it back twill be the sweetest work as ever i had done that puts it in my power to acknowledge once more my lasting thankfulness for this present action she was fain to take up the note again and to substitute the much smaller sum he had named he was neither courtly nor handsome nor picturesque in any respect and yet his manner of accepting it and of expressing his thanks without more words had a grace in it that lord chesterfield could not have taught his son in a century tom had sat upon the bed swinging one leg and sucking his walking-stick with sufficient unconcern until the visit had attained this stage seeing his sister ready to depart he got up rather hurriedly and put in a word just wait a moment lou before we go i should like to speak to him a moment something comes into my head if you'll step out on the stairs blackpool i'll mention it never mind a light man tom was remarkably impatient of his moving towards the cupboard to get one it don't want a light stephen followed him out and tom closed the room door and held the lock in his hand i say he whispered i think i can do you a good turn don't ask me what it is because it may not come to anything but there's no harm in my trying his breath fell like a flame of fire on stephen's ear it was so hot that was our light porter at the bank said tom who brought you the message to-night i call him our light porter because i belong to the bank too stephen thought what a hurry is in he spoke so confusedly well said tom now look here when are you off to-day's monday replied stephen considering why sir friday or saturday nigh about friday or saturday said tom now look here i'm not sure that i can do you the good turn i want to do you that's my sister you know in your room but i may be able to and if i should not be able to there's no harm done so i tell you what you'll know i'll like porter again yes sure said stephen very well returned tom when you leave work of a night between this and your going away just hang about the bank an hour or so will you 
don't take on as if you meant anything if you should see you hanging about there because i shan't put him up to speak to you unless i find i can do you the service i want to do you in that case he'll have a note or a message for you but not else now look here you're sure you understand he'd wormed a finger in the darkness through a buttonhole of stephen's coat and was screwing that corner of the garment tightly up round and round in an extraordinary manner i understand sir said stephen now look here repeated tom be sure you don't make any mistake then and don't forget i shall tell my sister as we go home what i have in view and she'll approve i know now look here you're all right are you you understand all about it very well then come along lou he pushed the door open as he called to her but did not return into the room or wait to be lighted down the narrow stairs he was at the bottom when she began to descend and was in the street before she could take his arm mrs pegler remained in her corner until the brother and sister were gone and until stephen came back with the candle in his hand she was in a state of inexpressible admiration of mrs bounderby and like an unaccountable old woman wept because she was such a pretty dear yet mrs pegler was so flurried lest the object of her admiration should return by any chance or anybody else should come that her cheerfulness was ended for that night it was late too to people who rose early and worked hard therefore the party broke up and stephen and rachel escorted their mysterious acquaintance to the door of the traveller's coffee-house where they parted from her they walked back together to the corner of the street where rachel lived and as they drew nearer and nearer to it silas crept upon them when they came to the dark corner where their unfrequent meetings always ended they stopped still silent as if both were afraid to speak i shall strive to see thee again rachel afore i go but if not thou wilt not stephen i know tis better that we make up our minds to be open wi one another thou art all us right tis bolder and better i have been thinking then rachel that as tis but a day or two that remains twere better for thee my dear not to be seen wi me it might bring thee into trouble for no good tis not for that stephen that i mind but thou knowest our old agreement tis for that well well said he tis better anyways thou'lt write to me and tell me all that happened stephen yes what can i say now but heaven be with thee heaven bless thee heaven thank thee and reward thee may it bless thee stephen too in all thy wanderings and send thee peace and rest at last i towed thee me dear said stephen blackfoot that night that i would never see or think o anything that angered me but thou so much better than me shouldst be beside it thou it's beside it now thou mak'st me see it wi a better eye bless thee good night good bye it was but a hurried parting in the common street yet it was a sacred remembrance to these two common people utilitarian economists skeletons of schoolmasters commissioners of fact genteel and used-up infidels gabblers of many little dogs-eared creeds the poor you will have always with you cultivating them while there is yet time the utmost graces of the fancies and affections to adorn their lives so much in need of ornament or in the moment of your triumph when romance is utterly driven out of their souls and they and a bare existence stand face to face reality will take a wolfish turn and make an end of you stephen worked the next day and the next 
uncheered by a word from any one and shunned in all his comings and goings as before at the end of the second day he saw land at the end of the third his loom stood empty he had overstayed his hour in the street outside the bank on each of the first two evenings and nothing had happened there good or bad that he might not be remiss in his part of the engagement he resolved to wait full two hours on his third and last night there was the lady who had once kept mr bounderby's house sitting at the first floor window as he had seen her before and there was the light porter sometimes talking with her there and sometimes looking over the blind below which had bank upon it and sometimes coming to the door and standing on the steps for a breath of air when he first came out stephen thought he might be looking for him and passed near but the light porter only cast his winking eyes upon him slightly and said nothing two hours were a long stretch of lounging about after a long day's labour stephen sat upon the step of a door leaned against a wall under an archway strolled up and down listened for the church clock stopped and watched children playing in the street some purpose or other is so natural to every one that a mere loiterer always looks and feels remarkable when the first hour was out stephen even began to have an uncomfortable sensation upon him of being for the time a disreputable character then came the lamplighter and two lengthening lines of light all down the long perspective of the street until they were blended and lost in the distance mrs sparsit closed the first floor window drew down the blind and went upstairs presently a light went upstairs after her passing first the fanlight of the door and afterwards the two staircase windows on its way up by and by one corner of the second floor blind was disturbed as if mrs sparsit's eye were there also the other corner as if the light porter's eye were on that side still no communication was made to stephen much relieved when the two hours were at last accomplished he went away at a quick pace as a recompense for so much loitering he had only to take leave of his landlady and lie down upon his temporary bed upon the floor for his bundle was made up for to-morrow and all was arranged for his departure he meant to be clear of the town very early before the hands were in the streets it was barely daybreak when with a parting look round his room mournfully wondering whether he should ever see it again he went out the town was as entirely deserted as if the inhabitants had abandoned it rather than hold communication with him everything looked wan at that hour even the coming sun made but a pale waste in the sky like a sad sea by the place where rachel lived though it was not in his way by the red brick streets by the great silent factories not trembling yet by the railway where the danger lights were waning in the strengthening day by the railway's crazy neighbourhood half pulled down and half built up by scattered red brick villas where the besmoked evergreens were sprinkled with a dirty powder like untidy snuff-takers by coal-dust paths and many varieties of ugliness stephen got to the top of the hill and looked back day was shining radiantly upon the town then and the bells were going for the morning work domestic fires were not yet lighted and the high chimneys had the sky to themselves puffing out their poisonous volumes they would not be long in hiding it but for half an hour some of the many windows were golden which showed the coketown people a sun 
eternally in eclipse through a medium of smoked glass so strange to turn from the chimneys to the birds so strange to have the road dust on his feet instead of the coal grit so strange to have lived to his time of life and yet to be beginning like a boy this summer morning with these musings in his mind and his bundle under his arm stephen took his attentive face along the high road and the trees arched over him whispering that he left a true and loving heart behind end of part twelve